Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. Our first topic today is Vikings may have produced their own wine. This story was in a UK article, The Telegraph. Kim, what did you take out of this story? I thought this was kind of a, a cool uh, a cool article. Um, a couple of archaeologists discovered in Denmark a couple of wine pips, which are the seeds of grapes, at, um, at a dig. And they are theorizing that these grapes were locally grown in Northern Europe after having done some scientific experiments on them, which led to the question of, well, what were these grapes used for? Were they eating grapes? Were they made into wine, possibly? We always think of Northern European cultures as being beer drinkers and not necessarily wine drinkers because it's a whole lot harder to grow grapes up in these colder Northern climates. And it's an interesting hypothesis that maybe uh, maybe some wine was consumed up there as well. That was the first thing I was going to ask you because when I saw this article, I'm thinking Vikings. I've never thought of a Viking drinking, you know, thing in general. What do you think of when someone tells you Viking about drinking? Um, I think beer and mead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, mead. I never thought of that one. Yeah. But definitely beer. I mean, those Germanic cultures before the in- say the invasion of the Romans, before the Roman times, uh, they were definitely a, a beer c- beer consuming uh, cultures. And wine and beer have always had sort of different connotations as far as status and who drank what and what was an elite beverage and what was more of a beverage for the masses. And wine has always had this connotation of either, you know, the people with money were drinking it or the or people who were using it as sort of more of a status symbol kind of thing were the ones consuming it. So there's some question now of as far as uh, this research is, it's like, oh, well, maybe this was wine that was consumed by just the elites or with the Vikings being a people that did a lot of travel and that traded with other cultures that perhaps they got a taste of wine someplace else and and this was maybe a chance for them to try making it on their own so i don't know there's feel like it introduced more questions than it gave answers but certainly something to think about you mentioned the roman so i timeline question for you because they sure. found roman wine cups so right. vikings versus romans you know, what time frames are we talking do you, so do you think? the roman empire fell before for the vikings really i think come into play as far as what we are thinking about their history. You know, we're thinking more, let's say around the year 1000 AD. And the Roman Empire really had been, was no longer around by the mid like 500 80s. So we're we're still thinking of Christian Europe at this point after the fall of the Roman Empire and how those artifacts from the Roman Empire kind of came into being used by more northern peoples. They would have been around for a little while. So in the article, like you said, they found grape seeds. Right. And then they mentioned they found Roman wine cups. So they were assuming the Vikings they're, they're used assuming those that the cups, Vikings correct? used those cups at a previous time and were maybe consuming wine that had been made in other places. And now that this is this maybe is some evidence that they made their own wine from their own grown grapes. I, I was interpreting it as the Romans just once again left their wine trash. In another, <laughs> another part That's of always the world. possible too, right? because so, they certainly left a lot of their stuff in England. So yeah. why wouldn't they have left it in Denmark? So unless 
they found that actual DNA of that seed in that cup, I, I would kind of dispute that the, yep. that a Viking was using it. It's, but so, I mean, this the climate in this area is just very harsh. So it's for me, it was hard to kind of understand how the Vikings would have have grown to to use it for consumption. Does that did that kind of raise anything for you? Yeah, it c- kind of raised some questions for me because it's very cold, and you can grow certain types of grapes in colder climates, but they're not necessarily the grapes that you want to be making wine out of because they're really just not ripe enough. So it's very, very possible that these were eating grapes and not necessarily grapes uh, for being made into wine and for drinking and that those leftover Roman cups were for either drinking something else or from an earlier time when Romans or um, other other peoples were using them in this area. So now you know, Vikings may have been drinking wine. We hope you are. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. And today we want to talk about a topic that we actually talk to our students about a lot. And that is the topic of oak in the winemaking process. We uh, stumbled across a really good article that explains the differences between the style of oaked wines and the different types of oak that are used to make wine. It's an article out of Wine Enthusiast. And so Mark, what was one of your takeaways from this article this it was a very in-depth of about uh, why use it uh, what does it taste like in you know, different styles and whites and reds and I think the key as when you explore wine is learn what oak smells and tastes like how would you train your palate Kim to to learn about oak there are specific flavors and aromas that aging in an oak barrel will impart both to whites and to reds so the thing that I have people keep keep their nose out for I guess you could say is these um, kind of toasty notes. So think about toasting bread or think about like campfire-y kind of notes. But then also spice and hints of vanilla and things like coconut and roasting nuts and smokiness. Kind of all those things generally will come from aging in an oak barrel as opposed to being an inherent flavor in the grape itself. One of my key things every time, the first time I smell a wine, I always look for oak. Fruit, oak, or earth. And uh, right away I'll, I'll know where I'm going with with the profile of the wine. So you mentioned types of oak, American oak, French oak, and you mentioned these vanilla, coconut. Mm-hmm. What do you get out of a wine for a flavor that uses American oak versus French oak? So American oak and French oak are actually two different species of, of oak trees. So they do have subtle differences. And what I generally get out of the American oak, it tends to be a little more flashy than French oak. So there's more of this hit of like a sweet vanilla or um, sometimes in reds that are aged in American oak I might get hints of like coconut or cinnamon like those sweeter spices that when you're making like a rice pudding you kind of have those nutmeggy cinnamon spices that you associate with sweeter dishes as opposed to French oak and especially noticeable for whites that have been aged in French oak there's um there's more of a nuttiness going on and less of those vanilla notes so you might be thinking what the heck is Kim talking what about what am I talking about when I first got into the wine world and, and heard about you know oak and these flavors I could not understand or detect 
exact what anyone was talking about. So we're, we're talking about wine that is either fermented or aged in a actual French or an American oak barrel. And these are the actual flavor profiles that it puts into the wine. And you have to really taste, I feel taste a lot to get to pick these out. But is it is absolutely amazing when, a, when someone tasting a wine can say, yes, I'm getting vanilla or coconut, so it's American oak, before they even know how this is made. And then there's a lot of trends now with different styles of oak. There's Hungarian oak, there's Oregon oak. Have you heard of this trend? No, Oregon I haven't oak? seen any Oregon oak. I don't know the specifics of what the flavor profile is, but there's a lot of people using oak from Oregon. And I know there are a lot of um, whiskey makers who are investigating using oak from all over the place, like oak from Canada and oak from Michigan and oak from all sorts of other places. And that's a huge trend right now is where wine producers are using bourbon oak barrels to mm-hmm. impart that flavor into the wine. Also, let's talk briefly, there's different types of, the, there's brand new oak barrels and there's used oak barrels or what they'll call neutral oak. Mm-hmm. So what do you feel a person tasting wine and they're hearing it's new oak versus uh, used oak? What will they get the difference? So new oak is going to give you more of those oaky flavors. So the wine actually pulls the flavor from the barrel. And as you use that barrel over and over and over again, the wine will take pretty much every flavor that it possibly can out of that oak barrel. So that after a few years, the wine's not getting any flavor from that barrel anymore. And Winemakers usually say that by the third time it's been used, it is no longer imparting any flavor. So it's considered a neutral vessel. That being said, there is still a benefit to using oak barrels because you do get a little bit of oxygen coming into the wine through the oak that you wouldn't get from something like a barrel that's made out of stainless steel or that's made out of concrete or that's made out of glass. So there is still a benefit of using those older barrels. You're just not getting that big hit of flavor anymore. And you talk about the the barrels itself. The cooper, when they make a barrel, they actually order the barrels of on a toast level. In other words, they, they put it over a fire and they burn the inside of the oak to release kind of these flavors. Mm-hmm from the oak. Think of it like toasting your marshmallow. Exactly. You know, if you have a raw marshmallow, you're going to get one flavor. If you have a little bit of a brown on your marshmallow, it's going to taste very different. And if you blacken that thing, you know it tastes different as well. So you might hear that they use new oak and it's dark char. I've not heard of a, a professional taster being able to identify the level of toast in a barrel, but I'm sure there's someone who could pick that out. I've never tried, but I, <laughs> I've never had the opportunity before. Yeah, so... Uh, and also be aware there are different ways oak can get into wine. So in in the American label, there is no government regulating that. When you say oak, it doesn't necessarily mean an oak barrel. Right. So Kim, what other ways can you get these flavor profiles in a wine that affects a wine and from oak? Yeah, winemakers can be a little tricky. So you can do something like have big pieces of oak and actually submerge them into the wine. So it's like you're doing a backwards and you're putting the barrel in the wine as opposed to putting the wine in the barrel. A winemaker could use oak chips and put that in the in the wine itself and impart the flavor that way. And then there are ways like just adding um, extracts, so not even necessarily the wood itself, or putting pieces of wood in a big bag and submerging it in the wine almost like a tea. So there are many different ways that that oaky flavor can be added to the wine without it necessarily having to be made in the old-fashioned, traditional way of actually putting the wine into a barrel made of oak. Let's think about it. You, you buy a new oak barrel, say it's thousand dollars or depending on what it is so you can use that barrel and put wine in it or 
you can break up maybe 15 staves off the barrel and use each one of those, or you can chip up the whole barrel and use chips of it. So I think part of it also is that, you know, they're using the highest quality wood to make the barrels, but then they have all this leftover wood. So that leftover wood is probably going into whatever it is that they're either breaking up into oak chips to use that as the oak chip flavoring of the wine or individual staves that maybe weren't as good a quality or the right shape in order to make into a barrel. So bottom line, I would say you can use this as a guide to cost. If you see a $10 wine that says it's oaked and a $30 bottle of wine that is oaked, what would you assume from that? I'm totally thinking that that $30 bottle is the one that was aged in the barrel. And hopefully the winemaker is taking pride in aging their wine the traditional way in the barrel. They'll put it on the label, hopefully. Not everybody will, but a lot of them will want to bring your attention to the fact that they are making it that way. So they will put on the label aged in an oak barrel. So if they say that, then then you're fairly certain that that's what happened. Yeah, many producers will not only tell you the type of oak, but how long it's in the oak or even percentages of, you know, 50% was or was in new oak, uh, 50% was in neutral oak. Um, so you can get all that detail, which we call the geeky stuff, but <laughs> I love that. But you can get all that information to find out if your wine is actually using real oak. And, and a, a producer that is proud of that will tell you that. A producer that doesn't want you to know things about it won't display anything about that. So be careful with oak. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you today. Our next topic is about Uruguay and wines in Uruguay, which is in Decanter magazine, Kim. So what was your take on this item? So this was a really nice explanation of the wine industry in Uruguay and a little bit of information about their main grape that they grow, which is a grape variety originally from France called Tanat. Do you need Tanat in the store, Mark? You know, I do. I have a dessert version, which ah. after we discuss a little bit, I'll tell you my take on that. But they were saying this is the new Malbec grape, which Malbec is trending very popular. So I'm thinking a lot of people do not know about this. I know as a retailer, no one's coming in every day asking me for, do I have any Tanat in stock or even Uruguay wines? Have you explored any wines from this region at all? A little bit. I've had a few and I've tried to use a few of these wines in my own wine tastings just to show people a different red grape variety that is doing very well in South America. So Uruguay is actually the fourth largest wine producer in South America. Usually we hear about Chile, we hear about Argentina, sometimes we hear about Brazil. And this is, I would call it a medium-sized country on the Atlantic coast in between Brazil and Argentina. And they are very well known for, for their cattle. And what's very interesting about the way that they handle their food production, and as an extension, their wine production, is that it's all very well organized and very well, I don't say cataloged. They um, they trace where all of their food comes from, how it's produced, and they do this for, for all of their beef, for a lot of their vegetables, and they're starting to do it for their wine as well. And they have never really used a whole lot of chemicals in their viticultural activities, so not a lot of pesticides in their vineyards. They try to have more organic practices. So by doing all these things, it's actually making 
a lot of their produce and a lot of their their meat products be very, very appealing to people in other countries that are looking for really high quality products. So it's uh, it's a country to watch. I was the one thing that stood out for me in this was, as you mentioned, the beef or cattle. And they had mentioned that is the highest per capita beef consumption. Mm-hmm. And I always th- I always thought Argentina, you always hear Argentina with Malbec. And so when you hear that, Kim, for me, I when I read that, if I didn't know the Tanat grape at all, I would automatically assume just from what they're eating that this is one heavy grape. Absolutely. And it really is. So Tanat is originally from this tiny little area. It's just south of Bordeaux. And it's known for a region for from a region called Mataran. And it makes this really heavy, powerful red. And most of the Tanats that I've had from Uruguay are of a similar style. So it's a really rich red, thick skin, lots of color, lots of extraction. So it's sort of like, sort of like a Malbec on steroids. You know, it's this really powerful red and winemakers are starting to get a little bit better about reining in those tannins and, um, and making it more of an enjoyable drinking wine. But those tannins are what makes it go so fabulously well with beef because the fattiness of a steak matched with the tannins of the red wine just work really beautifully together and raise both of them to something better. Yeah, so when you were saying powerful, you're talking tannic. Tannic, heavy. powerful, yeah, I yeah. get a lot of, you know, how I was introduced to this myself was an dessert version. So it's in a half-size bottle and it has this amazing chocolate note that That's cool. as a dessert version, it goes perfect with chocolate. So think of a dark berry with chocolate notes as a dessert wine. I think it's probably 17 or 16% alcohol, but that is the only tonight I stock and I've ever really explored other than the, the region of France where you talked about, we've explored that. I, I don't really see it around. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of wine right now exported from this country because they do tend to consume it a lot in, in their own country, again, with their beef. But there, there are a few producers out there and importers out there who are bringing them into the States. So hopefully we'll see a little bit more of these wines because they are pretty fun to explore. And it's nice to have a new grape variety to introduce people to because this style of big heavy reds is very, very popular. They did say only 5% exported of what they make. So, I mean, that's very low. That's probably why we're not seeing much around. And I also saw another stat. Maybe you can shed more light on it for me, Kim. But they said the this is the only South American country with Atlantic influence. Mm-hmm. Did that? What about Chile? Yeah. What about Brazil? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't wonder, understand. I wonder why. if it's more the Atlantic influence of, you know, with the ocean effect of cooling and warming like you see in Bordeaux. So I wonder if that's kind of what they were getting at. Maybe they benefit more because they're inland more, maybe. Maybe. Or maybe the other coastal areas of these countries, the coastal sections aren't the best places for growing grapes. You know, you kind of think of the beaches of Brazil and I don't think there are any wineries around around those beaches. But um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And the other thing that was interesting was that the Tanat grape is 25% of the plantings. But did they mention what the bigger percentage grapes were? No, they so, didn't. Why, I mean, that puzzled me why I thought this would be the biggest planted grape there, but uh, I guess not. So that was pretty interesting. We'll have to look into a little bit more about what else is available from Uruguay. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. To get more information about these articles and ourselves, please go to our Facebook page, The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Cheers.